Each year, the Cagua Youth Camp directors come into the headquarters office in McKinney to plan for the camp program, uh, both for the preteen and the teen camps. There, uh, those of us who've had the opportunity to play some small role in the camp program, I think are very, very enthusiastic about this program. We found it to be a really very, very useful, helpful, successful program that we've been able to have for quite a number of years now. And of course, there are many of the young adults who have passed through the program who nowadays are volunteering as staff and helping out in those ways. And they likewise would certainly be able to say that the camp program in many ways can be a life-changing experience. As an important part of the planning, the camp directors in the administration discuss a number of possible themes to have for the camps each summer. And they select the one that they feel will be the most helpful. There are, of course, many good ideas that come forward, but they have to narrow it down to one, and they select that particular one as the theme that they will follow each year so that everyone is able to focus on one particular theme, and it helps add a cohesiveness to the program. I think it's really helpful for all of us, even those of us who are not necessarily going to be taking part directly in the camps, to be aware of those themes as well, because it helps us to be able to pray about them and ask God's help and inspiration for those who are more directly involved. The theme that was chosen for this year's youth camps is courage under fire, courage under fire. Now a theme like that could certainly be incorporated into almost any camp program, whether it was a church program or not, but our camp properly derives its primary instruction from scripture. And as we're going to see in the next few moments as we move through this message, there's actually a great deal in scripture that relates to this particular subject of courage under fire. Most of us would understand that the courage a believer is called upon to exercise is much more than just some temporary bravado for a few moments. We live in a world where it is increasingly challenging, a world that requires greater courage for those who are going to truly try to live the way of life God has called us to live. As I began to think about the theme and whether a sermon of some sort about it might help those of us who aren't going to camp this year, I began to be more fully aware that this is a theme that can have some broad repercussions for all of us. I thought about examples of courage that we might all recognize Courage shows itself in a variety of different ways. Some have suggested six different types of courage. I don't know that that's all there are, but I thought it was an interesting way to break it down. There's physical courage. Those who exercise courage at times when there is physical danger or challenge. Now we'll look at some examples of that, but one that especially occurred to me, I wonder how many of you recognize the name Jackie Hunt Borsma. Probably not very many. This is a lady who earlier this year, she had, uh, in the times past, she had lost a leg to cancer. So she set herself a goal 
of running 104 marathons in 104 days. That's the equivalent of running from New York City to Mexico City. And she accomplished it just a little over a month ago. That certainly takes some physical courage to do something like that. There's social courage. People like Rosa Parks and the Freedom Riders of the 1960s who stood up against racial injustice. There's moral courage, like the person who refuses to compromise with what's morally right, no matter what kinds of pressure or rewards might be placed upon them. There's emotional courage, the person who's willing to extend love, concern to the unlovable and unappreciative, because there's certainly many people who fit into that category. There's intellectual courage, like perhaps a scientist or an educator who's willing to admit they made a mistake, that when other information comes in, they're willing to change their mind publicly, even when those who perhaps are less educated criticize them for the changing of their mind. And of course, there's spiritual courage, like the person who refuses to allow their peers to influence them to live in the wrong way. 16 times the Bible talks about being of good courage. What does that really mean? What does that tell us? How are we supposed to fulfill the admonition to be of good courage? What role does courage play in the life of the average Christian living in the relative safety of our land? Although with the mass murders of the last few months, one wonders about the safety of our land as well. But history has shown us that in the roughly 2,000 years since the days of Jesus Christ, many of our ancestors spiritually have lived with serious persecution that required them to put their lives on their line, and many of them were in fact martyred. We know, Scripture tells us, that there will be more martyrs in the future as well. If any of us ever face that situation, I'm sure we hope that we will have the same kind of spiritual courage that our spiritual forebears have shown as well. But is courage important to you and me right now as we live day after day in this world? And if it is, is there any way that I can grow in that characteristic? Is there a way, perhaps, that we can help impart courage to our families, to our relationships with one another. After all, the theme in camp is not simply to talk about courage, but to help build it. How do we do that? How do we do that? Can we help one another be strong and of good courage? What does it mean to be strong and of good courage? Often in times of great peril, ordinary people exhibit a level of courage that even they didn't realize they had. There's a recent news story in which President Biden was being interviewed by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Meacham. And in the course of the interview, Mr. Meacham cited a number of individuals who are, who are historically individuals that didn't stand out before, but as they went through various trying situations, rose to a very high level of courage and leadership. Mr. Biden modestly said, well, John, I'm not one of those guys. 
And Mr. Meacham's response was interesting. He said, Mr. President, neither were they until they were. We find ourselves in these situations sometimes when we didn't expect to be. What will we be in those situations? Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has certainly received a lot of praise and respect for his courageous response when the U.S. government offered to transport him out of the dangerous area of Kiev. His response was, the battle is here now. I need ammunition, not a ride. Mr. Zelensky, before he became the president in Ukraine, was a comedian. Nobody expected him to show the level of courage and leadership that he has. In fact, in recent days, our U.S. State Department has acknowledged they underestimated his ability to lead, to stand up, to motivate his people. But the situation brought out the best in his character. I think as many would expect, many of the most recognizable examples that we might think of, courage, come from times of war when people are confronted with very grave danger. Our own national saga offers us many examples of people who've shown exceptional courage in the face of danger, many of them involving battles that we could look back upon and literally change the course of history. But in addition to soldiers showing courage on a battlefield, there are many other great leaders who were known for their courage as well. Men like George Washington, yes, he was well known on the battlefield, but he showed courage in a lot of other ways as well. Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We would also do well to remember that courage is not exclusively a masculine trait. History offers us many examples of courageous women as well. Probably all of us have in our own lives individuals that we think of whose example of courage may have inspired us. I thought of my father, who was a decorated World War II veteran. He was a co-pilot flying B-17s out of England on bombing missions over Germany. At the time, the chances of surviving 25 missions to when you were rotated out was one in four. The earlier crews had the possibility of one in 10. One in four would make it to their 25th mission. As I was mentioning this to someone a while back, he told me his father was a tail gunner in a B-17, which was the most dangerous position. And he had flown 51 missions. It's almost unheard of. On their 18th mission, their plane took a direct hit in the nose of the plane by an 88-millimeter anti-aircraft shell. A Jewish fellow named Sidney Scher was the bombardier in the nose of the plane. Handsome, tall, young fellow named Martin Turgonsky was the navigator. And standing directly behind the pilot and co-pilot was the radio operator and top, top turret gunner, David Blue. All three were killed instantly when the shell went off. My father and the pilot were seriously injured, but along with the other four crew members, they were able to bail out, were captured, spent the rest of the war as prisoners of war. But I knew there was more to the story. 
Before coming into the church, my father had been hospitalized three times with post-traumatic stress disorder. So I knew there was a whole lot more to his story than what I knew and what he was willing to talk about. Thankfully, the gift of God's spirit provided a great deal of healing for him as well. But I knew there was much more and I didn't really understand it. And like I said, he really wasn't wanting to talk about it. A few years ago, I came across what I found to be an interesting book for me. Some of you might not find it the same way, but because of my background, I thought it was interesting. It was a book called Wild Blue. It was written by Stephen Ambrose, who's probably best known for his book, Band of Brothers. It gave me a better understanding of what my father's experiences had actually been going through that very difficult period. The book was actually about those who flew B-24s out of Italy, but bombing runs are bombing runs, and you pretty much have the same experience wherever you may be. The primary individual focused upon in this particular book was a fellow named George McGovern, who later became a senator from South Dakota, ran for the presidency in 1972. I found that I, through the years, had quite a bit of disagreement with many of Mr. McGovern's ideas. But after reading the book, I had a lot more respect for him as a man. And, as well, a lot more about what my father had been through as well. So as I began to think about the structure of this particular sermon, I, I thought about sharing some of his story with you. I've done a lot of looking into it. A few years ago when my wife and I had the opportunity to go to England, we actually went out to the place where the uh, airstrip used to be that he flew out of, and there was uh, an individual out there, he's a farmer today, but he had actually purchased a couple of old Quonset huts and he had made a museum for that particular bomb group and what they had been through, and it was absolutely fascinating. I won't take the time to tell you about that, but I, I found it to be absolutely interesting and for me uh, quite moving, actually, more than I expected. And since we are in a type of spiritual warfare, I suppose stories like that can be appropriate. But the more I learned about warfare, the more I realized that courage or skill or experience are not enough to keep you alive. On the battlefield, death is fickle. And in many cases, those who die, like Sidney Scher, Martin Tregonsky, David Blue, just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They weren't any less courageous, less skillful than anybody else. Combat veterans often struggle with what's called survivor's guilt because they really can't figure out why it is they survived while others didn't. For that matter, courage is certainly not confined to a battlefield. Not even to times of great conflict. For example, another of Stephen Ambrose's books is one titled Undaunted Courage, which is the story of the Lewis and Clark expedition as that particular group went out to explore the lands that we acquired through the Louisiana Purchase and to try to find a pathway to the Pacific uh, to be able to link all of that area together. Courage takes many forms. 
It's often shown in private moments when a person's faced with difficult challenges, times when they find themselves facing tough decisions all alone. Some of you may have seen the recent news item where the explorers in Antarctica discovered the remains of Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. The story of how Shackleton got all of his men safely home after spending more than a year on the ice at Antarctica is definitely an inspiring story of courage and determination. So the more I thought about it, the more I felt I needed to approach the subject from a different perspective. So I began to consider biblical examples of courage. And I soon began to see that there is one crucial difference between human courage and godly courage. Looking at examples of human courage can be very inspiring and very helpful. But like so many aspects of man's way, it leaves one vital factor out. Let's look a little more deeply and see what that factor really is. What do we mean by the term courage? Merriam-Webster describes it as mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. That's a very reasonable definition as far as it goes. I'm not sure where I first heard the quote, but the best explanation of courage I believe I have heard was a simple statement. Courage is not the absence of fear, it is the conquest of it. Others have approached the concept of courage in very similar ways. There's, of course, the always inspiring example of John Wayne playing Rooster Cogburn in True Grit, 1969 version. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. In the dark days of World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt said, Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. During the days when apartheid was enforced in South Africa, Nelson Mandela's activities led him to be imprisoned in the famous Robben Island prison. In 1994, shortly after his release, he became the first democratically elected president of the Republic of South Africa. Many feared that Mandela would seek revenge upon those who treated him badly, and frankly, many of his supporters wanted him to use his power to get revenge. But Mandela refused. He won the respect both of blacks and whites by refusing to engage in revenge and instead focusing on how he could unite a country that had been horribly divided. And true to his word, he stepped down after one five-year term as the president. If you'd like to know more about that, frankly, one of my favorite movies, Invictus, gives a very good account of that period of time. Morgan Freeman does an excellent job of portraying Mandela. I will give you a slight warning about the movie. If you watch it, you're probably going to find you really like rugby more than you knew. <laughs> Great sports movie too. But it illustrated very well what took place. 
In reflecting on the meaning of courage, Mandela said this, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Now, dictionary definitions are certainly helpful, but frankly, scripture often imparts an additional perspective to you and me. Whatever men may think about courage, they generally leave out the perspective that God reveals in his word. So, if I ask you to think about, in scripture, who are some of the heroes that you think of, heroes of courage that come to your mind? Probably all of us would have lists that are a little bit different, but let me at least make a few suggestions along the way. How about a fellow named Noah, who only had to stand for God's way against the entire world for 120 years, still remaining faithful, still trusting God throughout all of this. And I find the account absolutely fascinating because, of course, one of the things that you find is God said to Noah, okay, it's time to get in the ark. And Noah gets his family together, they go in the ark, and nothing happens for seven days. Again, I think that took a certain amount of courage too, trusting in God as you go through that. There's, of course, the famous story of Abraham. You think of Abraham as a courageous man? He had a lot of courage. In fact, I think a lot of times we don't really give Abraham the credit that we should. He was a spiritual giant. In the epistles of Paul, Paul refers to Abraham nearly 30 times. That's more than he refers to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and David combined. Abraham was a giant of courage and faith. At age 75, Abraham was willing to give up everything he had built and walk away to go where he didn't know because God said go there. But of course, it didn't just stop there. He walked that way for another hundred years. That takes a special kind of courage. Of course, we wouldn't have to come too much further down in the book of Genesis to find Joseph. And we would certainly have to recognize that in Joseph's life, we find many examples of courage. An individual who's willing to be faithful and strong throughout a lot of ups and downs. Then, of course, we could come to Moses as we get into Exodus. We'll look at Moses a little more in a few moments, but if you remember, Moses was considered a man of great courage before he ever took leadership of Israel. He was a great warrior, a great leader, as best we can understand. And yet the courage it took to lead Israel, to do what God said to do in those times, certainly was something special. I want to come back to that. We'll look at that in a moment. But go a little further. A couple of other fellows that always impress me with their courage and strength, named Joshua and Caleb. Individuals who were willing, again, to stand and to say what's right, to say, no, we need to do what God says. We can trust God. I'm going to turn to Numbers chapter 13 and begin there, Numbers 13 and verse 25. But I'm going to read this section from the New Living Translation. Uh, not necessarily more accurate, I just like the way it flows. And I think it captures the sense reasonably well. 
So beginning in Numbers 13, verse 25, it says, after exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. You remember the, they described the fruit. One of them was a cluster of grapes that they put on a pole and it took two men to carry it. Uh, beautiful. Now, again, sometimes that's portrayed as if the grapes are about the size of basketballs. I don't, I don't think so. But they probably were because I've seen the grapes in Israel as big as ping pong balls. So, yeah, they probably had something really quite impressive there, along with other things. They showed them all of this. But then verse 27, this was the report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, that's the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, that's the center portion. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean and along the Jordan Valley, west and east, respectively. In other words, their message was, the land's already full of people. There are no empty places for us to go. Verse 30, but Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report among the land, about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them we felt like grasshoppers and that's what they thought too. Little exaggeration there, but that's the report that came back. The Israelites were fearful. They lacked the courage to trust God. And they wanted to choose a leader who would take them back to slavery in Egypt. To be honest, in spiritual ways, that same approach has been repeated a number of times down through the history of Israel and even of Christianity. You drop down to the next chapter, chapter 14. I'll pick it up in verse 6. The people have said, oh no, we can't go up, we can't do this, we can't possibly go into the land, and they're rebelling, they want to turn away. We find here in verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But Israel lacked courage. Joshua and Caleb did not. They saw the same things the other people saw. 
but they saw them through a different lens. And it gave them courage where others lacked it. Now for the next one, I'm not really going to tell you who it was. I'll just ask you to see if you can figure out who it was who said this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You can probably figure that one out. Certainly another example of courage. After the kingdom had been divided, roughly 130 years later from the time of David, the northern kingdom of Israel had embraced the worship of Baal under King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Now again, the scripture doesn't show us this very much, but probably King Ahab was one of the most powerful kings in the northern kingdom's history. And Jezebel obviously exercised a great deal of influence there. That's where we find the account of the prophet Elijah confronting by himself 450 prophets of Baal. And we all know the story. I won't turn back there to read it. We see that example of courage. You may also remember, and again, I'm not turning there, but in 2 Kings 6, we find the famous story of Elisha and his servant, where the king of Syria sent out his army to capture Elisha and bring him back. And Elisha and his servant were in a small town. Well, it had a wall around it, so it wasn't totally small, but in the Galilee area called Dothan. And the servant went out in the morning and saw all the Syrian army gathered around. And he was terrified, understandably. And, of course, he told Elisha about it. And Elisha's famous comment is, don't worry, there are more with us than there are with him. And we have the famous account there of Elisha praying. The servant's eyes could be opened and he could see that the hills were covered with chariots of fire and angels. Fascinating story. Actually, it doesn't end there. It's a fascinating story as you go further and how God chose to work it out. But Elisha was not a man who was frightened. He had courage. He faced these things properly. Probably one of the most famous examples of courage in Scripture was with Daniel's three friends when they were threatened with being thrown into a blazing furnace for refusing to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Their words show what godly courage sounds like. In Daniel chapter three, I'll pick it up in verse 16. Daniel chapter three and verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I don't think that really captures the sense of it. There are a couple of other translations that put it this way. We have no need to defend ourselves. Or the other one that I like even better. We're not in need of an answer. You know, it's not like we don't have an answer for you. We have the answer. We don't have to stop and discuss it. We don't have to stop and figure out, well, can we negotiate something? What can we do? No, we we know the answer to this. Continues on in verse 17. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That's courage. That's godly 
courage. Not in the face of a war, but in the face of a challenge none of them had expected. Now, at this point, I think we ought to consider a few other biblical examples that may not immediately come to mind, but they are important to our understanding as well. In Judges chapter 4 and 5, there's an interesting personality who's introduced to us, Deborah. Deborah is a prophetess. She's an individual who has a, a, a certain inspiration from God. The people of Israel, in this case, are being oppressed by the Canaanite rulers of Hatzor, and especially their evil general, cruel general, Sisera. So Deborah goes to Barak, a leader of Israel, and says, you need to get a group together. She gives the, who that should be. Go out and face them. And Barak says, well, if you'll go with me, I'll do that. Barak lacked the courage. Deborah did not. She went with him. She said, okay, we'll go. I'll go with you, but I want you to understand, you will not receive the honor that you would have received otherwise had you gone as God told you to do. God delivered Israel. Sisera was killed by a woman. Not by Deborah, another woman. You may remember the famous story of that as well. If we come down a little further to 1 Samuel chapter 25, we come across another interesting woman. Her name was Abigail. Abigail was married to a fellow named Nabal. Nabal means fool. It means churlish individual. She was married to him. And you might think, well, how did she end up married to him? Well, when you read the story, you find that Abigail was quite a beautiful woman. And Nabal was quite a wealthy man. In those days, in spite of all the influence of Hollywood, as I'm sure it must have been back then, marriages were arranged. Nabal was a wealthy man. He wanted a good-looking wife, so he went out and bought himself one. Abigail, probably what we would call today a trophy wife. But Nabal got more than he bargained for because Abigail was a very intelligent person and she had a great deal of wisdom. And she had the courage to go out and face a band of individuals who were on their way armed to destroy her and her family. She had the courage to go out and face that. And it turned the course of Israel's history around. Then, of course, if we came down to that period of time after the captivity, we have several times referred to the famous example of Esther in the courts of Persia. When the decree is given by the king that all of the Jews are to be slaughtered, Esther's uncle Mordechai comes to her. We pick it up in Esther chapter 4, and I'll start in verse 13, where Mordecai sends a message to her. Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than the, any, all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows, whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's a fascinating statement by Mordecai. And undoubtedly it made Esther think. Her response we find in verse 15. 
Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's courage. It's godly courage in the face of a difficult situation. Remember, she hasn't seen the king in 30 days. Anybody who comes into the king's presence without being summoned can be executed. And, of course, the king had already demonstrated with his previous wife he didn't mind eliminating them. After all, what's another beauty contest? We can do that. It was a very courageous thing for Esther to do. And it's a godly courage. She stepped up and God backed her. One more example of a lady, and again, I'm not even going to turn to this one. It was um, a young lady in the early part of the New Testament named Miriam, although we usually call her Mary. But you think about it, here was a young woman engaged to be married. Well, let's take it a step further, betrothed to be married. And an angel appears to her. And of course, the first words, you can pretty well tell when it's one of God's angels because the first words are, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't, don't be afraid. Uh, even courage won't uh, stand up when you're confronted with an angel. So don't be afraid. And then he gives this amazing message that says, okay, you're going to have a child. And that child is going to take the, inherit the throne of David, and he's going to occupy this function. He's going to be the Messiah. And Mary reveals something about her practical nature. There's a problem here. I have never been with a man. And so the angel says, hey, don't worry, we've got this. God's going to send this and accomplish it through the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not trying to make light of that. You try to put yourself in that spot. What does it mean? Do you suppose the thought crossed her mind that how in the world am I going to convince Joseph that this child is actually from God? How's that going to happen? I mean, she probably realized the chances of that taking place were extremely slim. And therefore, she in a sense could very well be placing herself and her child in a position of being disgraced for the rest of their lives, looked down upon the rest of society, losing out on what she had prepared herself for, saved herself for. All of that could be gone in an instant. What was her response? Again, I'm not turning there, but you can turn to Luke 1, verse 38. Her response was, behold the handmaid of the Lord. Okay, if this is what God wants of me, I belong to God. Now, God did work things out with Joseph, as we know the story. But my point from that last series of individuals is to make the point that even Scripture recognizes courage as a trait for both genders. It is not an exclusively masculine characteristic. It is one that belongs to both men and women. One of the concepts that puzzled me as I was putting this together 
is that when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the nine characteristics that the Holy Spirit produces in the life of a Christian, courage is not one of them. And I wondered about that. As I thought about it, I realized that the nine characteristics listed, love, joy, peace, and so on, are attitudes, ways of thinking that produce actions. Courage involves action. It is a state of mind that produces actions. Feeling courageous and acting courageously are not the same thing. So what I began to recognize is that courage is actually an outward manifestation of the attitudes that are produced by the Holy Spirit. Several of those attitudes are involved in godly courage, but one especially stands out. So let's look at a few more scriptures and see if we can begin to recognize what that is. Psalm 111, Psalm 111, excuse me, 112, Psalm 112, verse 5. Psalm 112, verse 5. A good man deals graciously and lends, or more accurately, gives. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely, he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. Verse 7, he will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. A little further on in Isaiah chapter 26, we'll pick it up in verse 3. Isaiah 26 in verse 3. It says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. If we come to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 14, again, a famous story, you know it well, where the disciples are in a boat and the waters are troubled by a storm, and Jesus comes walking across the water to them. And we pick it up in Matthew 14, verse 27. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Seeing somebody walk on water could make you just a little bit concerned. Okay. So apparently that he was, he was trying to deal with them that way. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Wow, it's an amazing story. Now we know it changes rather quickly. Verse 30, when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Now, again, we can draw many lessons from this. Uh, I certainly think the last time I walked on water, uh, well, no, that didn't exactly happen either. No, I'm not criticizing Peter. But we all notice what led to Peter starting to sink. He took his eyes off of Jesus Christ, and he began to sink. Jesus Christ didn't begin to sink. He reached down, picked up Peter, and said, come on, 
You know, don't, don't, don't lose faith. You had faith, don't lose that. There's one more example. And I said we would come back to Moses, so let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. One more example I'd like to look at to make this point. And of course, Hebrews 11 is a fascinating chapter, but I'll pick it up just in verse 24. Notice what it says. Hebrews 11, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which means he turned down the throne of Egypt, choosing rather to suffer afflictions with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. It's a different perspective in Moses' life. Verse 27, by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I always love the last clause of that verse. That's a tremendous statement. Moses saw God as real as the chair you're sitting on. He saw God. He endured just like he could see a God who is invisible. Verse 28, by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. What's that have to do with faith? Well, there is no precedent for this. There is no precedent I can look back, okay, well, you know, God did this several times, so here's what I need to do. Nope, no precedent. Moses, kill a lamb, spread the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, and you'll be safe, okay? And by faith he did it, and he was safe. Verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Okay, what precedent do you have for walking out to a, a trench in the water? and walking across. There is no precedent, there's nothing you can turn to and say, oh yeah, God did it that way before, he'll do it that way again. Nope, no precedent. Stand on the edge of the Red Sea, hold up your staff, and I'll get you across. Pretty powerful message there. And by faith, he walked down into that water. Now, the Egyptians walked down into the water too, but they didn't do so by faith and they died there. Faith means believing God is exactly as he represents himself to be, almighty, eternal, loving, faithful, all of those characteristics, and that he always acts faithfully in the best interests of his children. Now, if we've been considering these passages as we go through them. We may recognize a key difference between human courage and godly courage. Human courage is based upon what we believe we can do. Godly courage is based upon our belief in what God will do. And that leads us to consider what I believe are the most courageous words anywhere in Scripture. And they're not just words. To me, this is the epitome of the connection between faith and godly courage. 
It's found in Matthew 26. You will know the passage. It is Jesus on the last night of his physical life in the Garden of Gethsemane going to pray. And in verse 26, excuse me, verse 39 of Matthew 26, it says, he went a little further, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He dropped down to verse 42. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Do you realize what an incredible bit of courage that is? Here is a being who has always existed, who is now willing in faith to trust God and die. Cease to have that consciousness to die in the faith, in the confidence that the Father's going to be able to raise him from death to eternal life at his right hand. There is no precedent for that. There never will be another precedent for that. This is a unique situation. You and I don't face the same thing. Mr. Kylo, and I think Mr. Kylo is a wonderful man. He and my father used to really enjoy talking with each other. and uh, they, uh, yeah, Great people. And I'm not saying he did not have faith in any way. I'm not implying anything negative, but I'm simply saying, okay, Mr. Kylo had a precedent. God proved he can raise from the dead to eternal life. But Jesus Christ had no precedent. The only thing he could rely upon was his Father's word. And in faith, he said, your will be done. That's courage. That's a tremendous courage. So, now, we come to the call to action step of the sermon. How do we grow in godly courage? What steps can we take that will make us courageous in the face of any danger to have courage under fire? Anyone can convince himself that he has courage during the easy times. But when the test comes, we can't afford to be wrong. To build godly courage, we basically need two elements in our lives. I will dare say these elements are going to sound too simplistic for some, but I'll back them up. Number one, we must be diligently striving to live a righteous life. Our beliefs as Christians must be the core motivating values in our lives. But what does that have to do with courage? Proverbs 28, verse 1. Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous is, the righteous are bold as a lion. Righteousness enables us to be as bold as a lion. Courage is based upon or built upon the choices that we make each day. When we refuse to lie to avoid a problem, we're building courage. 
when we refuse to compromise on the Sabbath or cheating or lusting or evil speaking, we're building spiritual courage. When we're living righteously before God, He supplies us with courage. I came across a fascinating quote by the late President Ronald Reagan, and I thought it fit very well. Here's what he says, though he doesn't use the word courage, he does talk about character. He says, the character that takes command in moments of crucial choices has already been determined by a thousand other choices made earlier in seemingly unimportant moments. It's been determined by all the little choices of the past, by all those times when the voice of conscience was at war with the voice of temptation, which was whispering the lie that it really doesn't matter. It's been determined by all the day-to-day decisions made when life seemed easy and crises seemed far away. The decisions that piece by piece, bit by bit, developed habits of discipline or of laziness, habits of self-sacrifice or self-indulgence, habits of duty and honor and integrity or dishonor and shame. Consistently living a righteous life enables us to have a godly courage. And element number two, since we cannot rely upon ourselves, then we need to ask God to help us build the courage we need. Psalm 138 in verse 3. Psalm 138 in verse 3. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Cry out to God for that strength. Notice as well a couple of verses that we read every year during the Passover service, and I wonder if we really realize what they're saying. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus Christ said, the same kind of faith that you have in God the Father, you can place in me. He is the living head of the church. When you read about what God says is his role, it literally tells us that God gave us Jesus Christ as a gift to be the living, continuous head of the church. And that can give us courage in difficult times. A few verses further on in verse 27, Jesus said to them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Basically, courage is a paradigm, a perspective, a lens through which we view life. A physical lens is designed to correct our vision, to enable us to see our environment as it really is, rather than blurry or darkened or distorted. God gives us the lens of faith in order to correct our spiritual vision. Without faith, when we leave God out of our thinking, our view of life is incorrect. We see life in distorted, inaccurate way. We see giants everywhere. 
We see powerful people that we can't begin to overcome. We see a distorted world. We see life in a distorted, inaccurate way. And God enables us to see the world through his eyes. And in that way empowers us to be strong and of good courage. Finally, if you look at Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. The author of Hebrews says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The actual construction in the Greek is, well, some say a double negative, some say a triple negative, which doesn't mean the same thing it does in English. It basically means, I will never, ever, ever forsake you. Verse 6, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me?